Hysteria is brought to you by Books. This Mother's Day, give mom her flowers. She deserves the best. That's why you should send her farm fresh flowers from Books. That's short for bouquets. And right now, you can get 25% off your entire Books purchase. Here's why everyone likes the Books company. Books is different. Their flowers are cut fresh and sourced directly from the best flower farms, so they last way longer. They even have flowers grown on the side of a volcano, which I love. Books has modern designs and unique flowers you can't find anywhere else. Books is simple. Go online, pick the delivery date, and you are done. Mother's Day is May 12th. Don't miss the chance to thank your mom. Order your books now. And with 20% off, you can send some to mom, wife, aunt, and even grandma. Erin, I love my books. I love a flower that lasts forever, and my books arrangements really do last a full solid week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have uh, I have some sitting on my kitchen table right now, mm-hmm. and they've been there for several days. And usually when I buy them at, like, the grocery store, they're sort of, like, starting to crap Fade. out pretty quickly. Yep. Not with books. They stick around. They look beautiful. I like how they kind of slowly open up and become even more beautiful as they sit on your, you know, wherever Absolutely, you Absolutely, because they're that fresh. So go to books.com and use promo code hysteria for 25% off. That's B-O-U-Q-S.com, promo code hysteria. Books, promo code hysteria. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, do you get songs stuck in your head? All the time. What's the most recent song that you have gotten stuck in your head? Uh, honestly, every rose has its thorn. <laughs> oh no. Uh, Heat of the Moment by Asia has been oh, in and I out of my- I love that one. I love the version that South Park does. Yes. Yes, every, every time. Honestly, every time Cartman sings on South Park, it really wait, warms my heart. Wait for me. I never meant to be so bad to you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to the show. This week, we're joined by Representative Gwen Moore and Megan Gailey to tackle the following questions. What's wrong with framing the school reopening debate as a battle between parents and teachers? How will the For the People Act protect voting rights? How can we reach out to our elderly neighbors during a time that's been especially hard on them? And which one of us has a bone to pick with American Idol? All this and more right now. Okay, lots of news to get to this week. First thing I want to talk about is uh, reopening schools has been a heated topic once again. Uh, We're about a year into this pandemic. and right now we're at a point where, you know, the vaccine is is theoretically available, but the people who need it are not necessarily getting it. Um, meanwhile, people who uh, have children who are school age have been essentially trying to tutor their kids at home full time in addition to the jobs they're already supposed to be doing. Um, it's put a ton of stress on caretakers, women in particular, um, and it has been really hard for kids. Um, I've heard friends of mine who have kids who are exhibiting symptoms of depression, which is so, so sad to hear about. Um, but, you know, meanwhile, there are 
teachers don't really want to be sent into workplaces that are not safe, where nobody is really taking precautions. And teachers unions and parents have sort of been pitted against each other in this this tug of war. Alyssa, what do you make of this parents versus teachers story? And do you think that uh, there is a solution to it? It makes, I mean, we've talked about this a lot. It just, I feel so bad about the way that this is being set up as like teachers versus parents. And in some ways, I think that the states, maybe even the federal government, like they don't want to be the, in the line of fire. So they're like, parents are unreasonable. Teachers are being, you know, insubordinate. And I just think that, um, I guess I just wonder why we can't prioritize vaccinating teachers. I mean, we're basically, we need everything that we know is telling us that kids need to go back to school um, for a myriad of reasons. Like you actually, there are too many reasons to even list why kids need to go back to school. So if this is so important, that's one. Two, we also know that teachers over the past years have gotten such short shrift. I mean, Erin, we have talked about teachers who buy their own school supplies, who have who have gone above and beyond to take care of, of you know, needy kids in their classes. And like, why, if I'm a teacher, why am I believing, you know, it's like, I understand, I think that I feel a lot of empathy for the teachers to be like, wait a minute, you say everybody needs to vaccine, but we're cool. You know, Mm -hmm. oh, we just need mitigation steps in place. So teachers now have to police kids and tell them how to wear their masks. I mean, which is, it's, that's tough. Social distance. Some of the steps include making class sizes smaller. Well, the class sizes need to make smaller. Teachers, be made smaller, sorry. Teachers don't do that. Teachers aren't like, make my class smaller. Oh, you can make the class smaller and then the teachers just divide like amoeba now. So there's enough teachers to deal with each smaller class size. Like, where is this? Who's handling the more? Where's, where's the beef, man? Like, Like, yeah, here's the solution. Fewer kids. Uh, what? (laughs) Right. And the social distancing and all the, and so I just feel like, we are getting information that seems very reasonable. Of course, social distancing, better better ventilation. Okay, I don't know about you. I mean, we've talked we've also talked about this over the course of the past year. Schools have done what they've had to do to do right by their students. And in so many cases that involve robbing from Peter to pay Paul. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, you need iPads? Okay, well, we've like zeroed out the sports budget for the next two years to be able to do that. And like all these chickens are going to come home to roost. Mm -hmm. So I just feel like there needs to be more support Mm -hmm. or more, um, what's the word, Erin? There needs to be a little bit more brazenness, a little bit more leadership, I think, from the states being like, and here's how we're going to get there. Mm -hmm. Because right now it's like, Parents seem unreasonable and teachers seem petulant. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. Mm -hmm. Here's something that sort of bums me out about this framing. Because I know that I introduced it as parents versus teachers. But part of the reason I introduced it that way is because I find that to be bullshit. I think teachers and parents are on the same side here, which is that they want their kids back in school. I don't think I know a single teacher who likes teaching remotely compared to doing it in person. Nobody goes to college and gets an education degree, in many cases gets a master's degree or or further, because they want to sit in front of a screen and teach uh, Brady Bunch squares of Zoom kids. They want to be in classrooms. Teachers want to be in classrooms. Kids, parents want their kids to be in classrooms. Like teachers and parents are on the same team, which is team safe 
safe schools. Right. You know, and like safe schools can be achieved by A, giving teachers priority in vaccinations. B, if there is a teacher that has a very, like severe immunocompromised situation or like I heard a story of a, a man who had a wife who was getting chemo for breast cancer and he was nervous about going to school in person because of, you know, questions around that. I think that 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 uh, there should be accommodations made for teachers in exceptional circumstances. Um, but I also think like the the way that the story is being told by the news media is fucked up. And it's making, totally. th- it's making things worse because this is not a teacher's union advocating for safe working environment for teachers and doing what a union is supposed to do, which is advocate for its members, is not doing anything wrong. What What is Correct. being done wrong is the government that is supposed to facilitate a safe return to schools is not doing it. And like, that makes me so, makes me really mad. It makes me I guess maybe not mad, just disappointed at the news media um, because I think that they kind of fell for a they fell for a uh, anti union yeah tr- like totally trick. Um, and also, here's another thing I want to get into. Um, you know, the CDC uh, head of the CDC, Dr. Uh, Rochelle Walensky, has said that um, teachers schools should be able to be safely open with mitigation strategies in place. Um, There are some teachers that are really incredulous about that. Um, And I don't blame them because for the last year, we have been constantly lied to. We have been told things about the pandemic. The communication strategy around the pandemic has been non-existent to terrible. And so I think that, you know, while this isn't the Biden administration's problem, they didn't make the problem of bad communication and a backlog of mistrust, it's now something that they need to deal with before we can move forward. And Alyssa, I'm wondering how you think a communication strategy that, that, that gives the public accurate information about the pandemic, how, how could the Biden administration strategy be improved? Like what would you like to see? So I think, well, there are two things, right? It's around vaccines and then around vaccinations and then around the actual, like, trajectory of the pandemic. And I think that, you know, last night we saw Vice President Biden, uh, he he did a town hall, you know, and I think that town halls are an incredibly good way to do that because you get people's questions, not media hype questions that are like, gotcha, but like real people's questions and concerns, and then you get real answers. And I think that one thing I might think about is making sure that you have maybe only a real few, few messengers on this Mm -hmm. because a slight of one word can make a difference, you know, in stuff like this. And so I would, I would also just go like super basic I would I would do a PSA, one about how to get vaccinated and one about what's happening with the pandemic. I would put it on every radio station. I would translate it into as many languages as we need. I would make sure I'm communicating with like who is in touch with people who have been quarantined for so long. People are still in communication with their churches and synagogues and temples and mosques and like AARP Magazine. AARP Magazine has 38.8 million readers. 
Mm-hmm. That's how many people subscribe to the magazine, which makes it like the number one most read thing. So like, let's just find, they're not sexy, you know? It's not like, oh, let's figure out how to communicate with young people through TikTok. Um, you don't need to host a clubhouse. I think you've got to go like <laughs> super brass tacks mm-hmm. and just pretend you have to attack this in the same way I think you t- you attack a hurricane or any other crisis where communication is limited. Because I think people's bandwidths are completely just blasted and that we just need to know. Mm-hmm. Where do we get the vaccine? When can you get the vaccine? Like, do you have to get it within 21 to 28 days? What happens if you don't? I mean, I think that there's just a lot of different bits of information And yes, it's all on websites, but the websites keep crashing because so many people want the information. So I think Mm -hmm. we just have to really, really, really just go old school. Mm -hmm. I've never been on the the side of developing a communication strategy, but I am a consumer of information. And um, one thing that I find deeply ineffective and annoying about a lot of government communication is that it tells you to go to a website. No. Right. Put the inform put the most Give me a billboard. Thing, give me a billboard like before when I log on to Netflix, make there be a screen that appears before I can even see the menu that has three bullet points of what I need to know. Here's the latest. If we're in a war, if this is a wartime type endeavor, let's use the government's ability to communicate through mass media to the extent that we can and let's get really good at having information like make it so it's unavoidable. Not Instead of something right. that we have to seek out, I think it would be much more effective to make it unavoidable, especially to the people that need to know it the most, which are people that are the most vulnerable and probably um, people who are in caretaker roles. So, you know, parents uh, and, uh, and, and the elderly. So in communities with the highest rate of COVID and the lowest rate of vaccination, which is fairly easy to figure out uh, at, a, at, at the state level, send trained people door to door to give people the information. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like, this all sounds like such a huge lift, but it's just not going to get better until we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that members of the community who want to volunteer within the community to be disseminators of information could be really helpful, especially if members of that community are rightfully suspicious Correct. about about public health measures because, uh, you know, people of color have in the past been, and in the present, been mistreated by the medical community um, and and been and been lied to. So right. it's totally reasonable that there are people that would, um, you know, like in California, you know, we were sterilizing Latina prisoners without them knowing. You right. know, like that's unbelievably fucked, and it makes perfect sense that members of uh, that community would be suspicious or not quite. So I think it's important that you know, in addition to having the like. This is what the, this is what you need to know. This is the official communication. I think that your your point about community um, community advocates talking to members of their own community uh, is is something that is really important. I because I don't think that we're going to get through this unless we all get to a point where we trust public health information again. Right, and imagine, Aaron, if you are an older person, if you are in a a vulnerable population, but say every Sunday you're still tuning into your church Zoom. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the sermon or whatever it is people do at church, a member of the community came on and said, I'm a vaccinator. 
Uh, we are going to be here at this church Monday, Tuesday. Please come between nine and five. All here's the information you need to bring. Like I just think that it's it's like, and then it spreads like wildfire. You know, mm-hmm. maybe you tape it, maybe you email that message out to everybody, maybe you have it on the front doors of the church. I just think that it just needs to it needs to get really, really old school. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, you know, it's like, and it's not fair. The Biden administration essentially inherited spoiled milk, which they have to unspoil. Mm-hmm. And so like, but that's why I think that it's making communication any fancier or more complicated is just going to repel people who already are like, I logged in five times. I didn't get an appointment. I'm sure I'll figure it out at some point instead of making it easy for them and to feel comfortable to go get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking about how like a World War II era communication strategy, and I'm not suggesting, uh, I'm not suggesting like um, uh, propaganda, (laughs) but uh, like, I was just thinking about like Looney Tunes from World War II and how awesome they are and how I wish that maybe there could be like a SpongeBob versus like a COVID cartoon so kids could maybe understand it. I don't know. Actually, like people in their 20s watch SpongeBob, so maybe not that. But you know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> yes. uh, public health awareness communication that that is like there's a lot of subtlety in communicating scientific information. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that's like undeniable. And there's all these qualifying words like mostly inconclusively correlated, right. you know, and that's not an easy thing to communicate with people. So I just think making it as clear as it possibly can be um, and and reestablishing a pattern of honesty is really important. But, you know, I was reading this week that um, there was uh, that there's something like only one third of uh, nursing home employees have gotten the vaccine that's been offered to them. And, you know, I, my, my first reaction to it was like, man, fuck this. This fucking right. sucks. But my second thought was like, no, actually, I shouldn't be mad at these low-wage employees. This is a failure of information and communication. So like, fix, you know, like that. that's not, it's not on people to, like, it is on the government to help fix this. We do. And it's like, I mean, think about it. Some vaccinations have taken, some vaccines rather, have taken 10, 20 years and we're telling everyone it's cool. <laughs> Nine months, not a problem. Mm-hmm. Like there is a there is a threshold you have to get people across. And I don't think they're wrong to want just like a little bit more assurance that this is not, you know, especially when the vaccine was developed under a president who did suggest ingesting bleach. <laughs> and so <laughs> Exactly. And you know, I think another thing that's important for people to understand is like the only thing that Trump did. In, to aid vaccine development is to be like, yeah, we'll prepay for those. He didn't like, interf- he wasn't the one doing the research. He was like, he didn't even have a distribution strategy. All he did was like write some, apparently just redirect some money, which- Yeah, that's it. That's literally it. So he's, he didn't like taint the vaccines <laughs> by being right. an idiot. Um Okay, so the only thing that needs to happen in order for schools to open is for the government to undo uh, a deficit of mistrust. That's all. It's going to be so easy. It's super easy. Um, But it's super, it seems to be a high priority for the Biden administration. Um, Kamala Harris, Vice President Harris has been out um, talking about how it's really important for them to get kids back in school five days a week. And you know what? I believe them. I believe that it's important to them and I believe that they can do it. Same. Um, 
And I'm, I'm rooting for them. So do we have any toasts or roasts today, Alyssa? We have a toast, right? We do have a toast. Do you want to do the toast? No, you do the toast. I want to toast a very special member of the U.S. House of Representatives, Delegate Stacey Plaskett. She's a mm. delegate from the U.S. Virgin Islands, and she absolutely crushed it as impeachment manager. Um, she's a former prosecutor from the Bronx, and she was actually a student of Jamie Raskin, who is the head of the uh, House impeachment team. And um, listening to him talk about how proud he was of her is really heartwarming. Um, Plaskett was super straightforward, forceful, um, brilliant, and uh, really, even though Democrats were not able to convict Donald Trump because, you know, he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and the Senate would not vote to com- convict him, unless, to steal a joke from, uh, I believe, uh, Al Franken, unless that person was Ted Cruz, then maybe this <laughs> But, you know, she was she was so impressive. And I think this was the first time that a lot of people got to see her in action. And uh, I just I just just loved watching her to pieces. I thought she was just so we got to get her on the show. No woman ever should wear a pussy bow again because she's ruined it for everyone because no one will ever look as good as she did. I mean, it there is also just such a like. I don't even know. She was just, I felt she was just fierce the way she walked. And she just, she didn't stop. The Republicans couldn't stop her when they tried to ask stupid ass questions, our mm-hmm. fucking fearless jury. She was just like, no, no. And I mean, she was just so, uh, she was like really inspiring. Mm-hmm. She's also, uh, she used to be a Republican. She was a Republican. Yes. She worked under uh, George W. Bush and she became a Democrat in 2008. So she went from zero to 100 miles an hour <laughs> in terms awesome. of her political journey. Um, she's just really, yeah, and, and you're right. Her, it's not the point, but her, not the point. her fashion was amazing. She was amazing. Just iconic. I loved her, her cape on the first day. Oh, it was so good. Yeah, she's just like a perfect example of like why, you know, how a person can be fashionable and incredibly stylish and still professional and tough. And like, I don't think there was a single person. Not mutually exclusive. Not mutually exclusive at all. And I think that it's time to put put an end to people saying that women caring about fashion somehow makes them less Serious. We'll just because, put a pussy bow on that conversation. Yeah, put a pussy bow on it, like Delegate Stacy Plaskett. So a toast to Stacy Plaskett, um, who rocketed to public consciousness last week. If people didn't know about her before, and I'm sure we're going to be seeing a lot of great stuff from her in the future. Okay, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, Congresswoman Moore. And welcome back. We are delighted to welcome to the show for the second time, Representative Gwen Moore. Moore represents the 4th District of Wisconsin and has served in the House since 2004. That's quite some time. Uh, Please welcome back to the show, Congresswoman Moore. Well, thank you for having me. And it's always better the second time around, (laughs) like that second helping. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm real glad to be here with you. And of course, 
I'm sure we won't find anything interesting to talk about during these times. Yeah, it's been <laughs> a pretty slow news year, right? Nothing yeah. really going on. Um, well, let's let's get into some of the many things that are going on. Um, Republican state legislators across the country have introduced 106 bills to restrict voting rights, which is three times the number of bills to restrict voting rights access as compared to this time last year. So they're really kicking it up a notch. Can you tell us a bit about What's going on? Who state legislators are targeting with these laws and why? Well, yeah, they they introduced 106 bills since the election where they want to suppress the votes. As you know, people who vote in places like Philadelphia, Detroit, Milwaukee, Atlanta, you know, kind of get my drift. (laughs) And to make it more difficult for elderly, for students, for low-income people who move frequently, may not have the right kind of voter identification. But I just don't want your listeners to think that this 106 bills that they've introduced is something new. It's part of what they have been trying to do. Republicans realize that the majority of the population does not go for, for, for their policies, their programs. Donald Trump lost the popular vote by what? what Five million votes lost this time by even more, eight million votes. We had George W. Bush uh, lose the popular vote. And so they have in earnest tried ways to enact these voter suppression laws, quite frankly. And it's just something that they've done since Reconstruction. Now, the one thing that's uh, sort of stopped them from doing this was the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act and and legislation that was suspended, revoked in Eric Holder versus Shelby County. And that's where the former attorney general under Obama lost a lawsuit. And I remind him of that, that he lost that, where they had preclearance provisions to stop some of the voter suppression in places that were known for, you know, moving polling sites at the last minute putting only one poll site in an area where people have to travel miles and miles to get to it. You know, this time they want to stop in-mail voting now that Black people have discovered this as an alternative to in-person voting. And when they did that with Eric Holder versus Shelby County, they really suspended the preclearance rules for places like Shelby County, uh, Alabama, and immediately they put in legislation to make it more difficult for African-Americans, quite frankly, to vote. This is the story of the African-American experience in America. It's an ongoing saga. So that when you see the John Lewis's of the world die, you know, you have to stop grieving pretty quickly because it's your turn at this point to step in the line in his absence to stop it. Mm-hmm. Congresswoman, Wisconsin's state government is mostly run by a Republican minority that seems determined to obstruct at every turn. How do Democrats work around these people? Well, I'll tell you, Emma, um, it's very difficult. When you, you know, let's, I just want to get off the subject of voting for a second just to set the table for these kind of Republicans. These are people who are fighting the mask mandate in the state. I mean, they are vigorously fighting that. And then when told that it would cost them $49 million in food share, food stamps, 
SNAP funds. Uh, they're trying to figure out a way around that so that they can keep the money and still lose it. These are radical thinkers. And so, you know, this whole notion that you're going to work with them and reason with them uh, is very, very difficult. They're in the majority and they know that their lives as Republicans are very, very limited. I mean, I just want to get away from voting for a second just to show you what other things. People are sanctioning members of Congress who voted to impeach Donald Trump or to convict him. This is a cult of personality. So I think two-party government is really important. We're warned by our founding fathers not to have just one party. But right now, we don't have an opposition party. We have seditionists, insurrectionists. I, I, don't, I don't know quite what to call them. And so what we're doing, for example, in Congress to go through budget reconciliation rules to kind of plow through working within our own party to get something done for COVID relief is where we have to go. And I do think that getting H.R. 1, which is it shows you our priority, is House Resolution 1, getting that bill through is one of the highest priorities because, you know, without the, the right to have a democracy and to be able to vote and include every everybody else, it just sort of, uh, it, it kind of goes downhill from there mm-hmm. in terms of being able to enact any other thing. And so Republicans realize that uncommitted voters, young voters, or we have now come to a point where millennials outnumber Millennials and Gen Xers, they outnumber us baby boomers. So they now have the power and they're much more likely to be, you know, the younger you are, the much more likely you are to not be white, to be of some mixed heritage. So that really puts the folks in charge at some risk of letting them vote because no telling what somebody of color is going to do. They might not vote for Lindsey Graham. (laughs) <laughs> or, or Mitch McConnell. Um, and so the only way that we can get around that is to put in these onerous voting requirements. And, you know, and you know, I have had people say, well, what's wrong with requiring a voter ID, a driver's license? It's a hassle. I'm somebody right now who needs to update my driver's license. I mean, you got to have transportation to get there. You got to have time. Uh, to stand in line. You got to have so many supporting documents. And now with the real IDs, the birth certificates, and maybe a social security card. But having all those things should not stop you from having a constitutional right to vote. You know, it's easier to get a fishing license than it is to get an ability to register to vote. And the more layers you put on top of things, requiring things, the less likely you're going to have someone who just just does not have the time or capacity to do all that just to vote. Their polling site might be right at the corner, Mm -hmm. but they've got six or seven hours of, you know, writing down to Mississippi and sending their $20 in to get their birth certificate, if the birth certificate is there, and so on. Mm -hmm. I know that, uh, you know, my eldest son had to go through a lot of trouble because he didn't have a birth certificate. We had to get an attorney to get him a birth certificate. That's a lot of effort just to have the right to vote. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it sounds like for a long time it's been people vote, more people vote. It endangers Republican power. 
Republicans freak out and try to make it harder to vote. And that goes on and on and on. But what are the long-term consequences right now in, if we do not protect at the federal level voting rights? Well, I mean, everything is at risk. I mean, our democracy really relies on the people having the right to vote. I mean, this last election, when you add uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden and whatever third party votes there were, we're talking, what are we talking here? 150 plus million votes? I mean, these are people's voices. And it seems to me, as disappointed as we might be about the outcomes of some of these races, these people surgically, I mean, they chose to have a unified government. They chose a Democratic president. They chose those two senators in Georgia. And it was miraculous to me how uh, in places uh, that they sustained the vote of Republicans, like here in, in our state, they voted against Donald Trump, but they maintained all the other Republican elected officials. So this was deliberate. They wanted to get rid of Donald Trump. And people like Susan Collins got another term. People made those choices, and that's a healthy democracy. Taking away people's rights to vote really subvert that. People in Georgia, you you can hardly blame people for turning out those two senators when their party, and when they had a chance to vote to give people COVID relief, they voted no. Two wealthy people, two individuals extremely wealthy who couldn't see the pain and misery of urban people in Georgia, rural people in Georgia, black, white, Hispanic, otherwise, couldn't, couldn't identify with their misery during Christmas, during Hanukkah, during Kwanzaa, winter solstice, nothing. Wintertime, facing eviction, hunger, food insecurity, couldn't see that. Mm-hmm. And the people... Spoke up. So that's what's at risk. So when I look at H.R. 1, if you excuse me here, I've got some of the provisions that are in here. The key provisions of the bill that it would really return us to the pre-clearance provisions. And really, those states like Louisiana, Mississippi, New York, believe it or not, North Carolina, South Carolina, Texas and Virginia would continue to have to get pre-clearance. And it would also give a look back. So that places like Wisconsin, for example, who had put in these onerous voter uh, restrictions might be included in preclearance provisions called a federal bail-in. Greater transparency of states to ensure that voters have information next to late-breaking changes in polling sites, procedures. It would require a nationwide practice-based preclearance of known discriminatory practices, including the creation of at-large districts, cuts to multilingual voting materials, for example. H.R. 1 just focuses on giving people greater access to the ballot box. Automatic voter registration across the country. People who've completed their felony sentences to have their voting rights restored. And as a matter of fact, on that point, There have been studies that indicate that there is lower recidivism when you restore people's voting rights because suddenly Mm -hmm. these people become stakeholders Mm -hmm. in their democracy. It would provide security, support for voting system accuracy, 
paper ballots for states to upgrade their equipment. You know, all of our, our elections are run at the county and local level. So the ability of a county to have accurate and the updated voter equipment is lagging. So there would be grants programs to do that. So HR1, there's nothing threatening about it except the threat that there's going to be a light shown on discriminatory practices that people are going to have to account for. Mm -hmm. So pivoting uh, a bit to COVID, Wisconsin's vaccine rollout speed has moved up in the national ranking with 7.4% of its population vaccinated, which is great. Because COVID has disproportionately affected communities of color, I'm wondering what state officials can do to ensure that the distribution is made swiftly, but also equitably. And what are some lessons that other states can take from Wisconsin? And what could Wisconsin be doing better? Well, you know, I am very happy that we have a Democratic administration simply because Republicans have continued to not take the virus as seriously as they should. I mean, this this fight over whether to wear masks or not wear masks is emblematic of their denial that it's a problem. Uh, I can tell you that I had a virtual meeting with our Secretary of Health and Human Services in the state of Wisconsin, and she says that there has been an immediate change a noticeable change in the distribution of the vaccine since President Biden took office in just this short period of time, that there's greater certainty around when the vaccines are going to be to come. And so we appreciate that. But what I did raise to her attention, and she hadn't thought about it, is how you're prioritizing rolling the vaccine out. And maybe it'll be moot because the vaccine will come so quickly that everybody will be getting it at the same time. But unless and until that happens, I told her there are things to consider. You know, I, I guess in statistics, they would call it the mode. If you start rolling things out right now, we're vaccinating 65-year-old age group. That's great. But if you continue to roll that vaccine out by age group, we most assuredly will vaccinate just about every white person before we get to people of color. You know, what they the common age for white folk in America is 58 because the big baby boom that occurred after World War II was white people having children. I mean, and, and like in my group, we're the boomers. Uh, we're much more likely to be old. And there are many more white boomers than there are other people. The most common age for somebody Hispanic is 11. So when you think about it in terms of statistics, you know, not averaging the ages, not coming up with the median age, but what's the most common age for somebody that's Hispanic in this country, age 11? For African-Americans, that would be 27. So if you start going by age, the likelihood that somebody's going to be 58 they're much more likely to be white. So I just think that it's really important to use a different kind of overlay. Plus you might find in a case like in Wisconsin, counties that are practically all white and old, you know, uh, and therefore, you, you know, you're not doing it in inner city. I think mm -hmm. it's wonderful that they've thought about occupations. I, I'm scratching my head figuring out how teachers are going to be safe if they're not prioritized because they are adults 
that have other interactions and they say the children can't affect them, but they can infect each other. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, uh, teachers are precious and I would love to see that cohort be stood up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we agree. We're big, we're big teacher fans here. My mom's actually a public school educator in Wisconsin. So yeah, that's something that's a topic of conversation between us quite a bit. So Wrapping this up on a high note, uh, we have a segment on our show called Sanity Corner, where we share something that we're doing to keep us sane. And since it's Black History Month, we've been talking about the work of Black artists, performers, writers, and creators that have brought us joy. So are there any Black creators whose work has been bringing you particular joy lately? Well, I just bought for uh, Christmas holidays some books by Paul Robeson, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Langston Hughes. These are just favorite poets and I'm sorting and going through books now because I got too many of them. They're overrunning my house, but I just cannot (laughs) get rid of any of these Black poets that really feed the soul. They tell you about your past and about your future too. I am, like I said, trying to stay sane. I've got too many knickknacks. I've been all over the world and their knickknacks are driving me nuts. I've got a, (laughs) I bought some bubble wrap and, you know, I'm going to either share or something, some of these things that I have. Have you ever thought of having like a knickknack library where people can check out a knickknack? Like it's, you remember how Netflix used to send you like the DVDs in the little envelope? You could just send someone a, net, a knickknack for like a couple days and then they have it in their house and then they send it back. Well, I do worse than that. If someone comes over and admires it, they usually are forced to take it home. <laughs> do you have a favorite? <laughs> Like I said, I have a lot of knickknacks. I have a lot of knickknacks. And I have, you know, African women statues and African men to go with the African women. And, you know, nativity scenes, you know, Nigerian ones and Hispanic nativity scenes and the, you know, too too much. (laughs) Well, you know what? I kept my Christmas tree up until... Right before the inauguration, and I think Alyssa kept her Christmas decorations up too. So I look, did too, what, but but it was because I was still, lazy. Mine's I was still just up. lazy, y'all. I just was <laughs> lazy. Actually, my son was in the hospital with COVID, oh, and no. uh, and yeah, and I wanted to keep the I wanted to keep the uh, Christmas tree up until he came home. He came home the day of the inauguration, January twentieth. So I think I took it down a couple of days before then. I think I got not so sentimental about it because it was just a little bit, it was just getting a little dusty and crowded in here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad he's home. That is, what a nice thing to be welcomed home by. That's that's. So oh, nice. he came home on inauguration day. So I didn't go to the inauguration. I enjoyed it so much. I wasn't cold. I wasn't freezing. <laughs> I wasn't, uh, you know, in the perimeter trying to figure out how to get over the big gates and, you know, razor fencing. It was wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Representative Gwen Moore, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a delight to talk to you and uh, take care. Thank you. Happy New Year, everybody. Yes. Happy New Year. This episode of Hysteria is brought to you by Viore. 
Need the perfect Mother's or Father's Day gift? Check out Viore Performance Apparel. Drawing inspo from the coastal California lifestyle, Viore's products inspire others to live vibrant, active lives. I love that they're calling this the coastal California lifestyle. I will embrace that instead of what I thought it was, which was the I only want to wear comfortable clothes lifestyle. Yeah. I have. I refuse to be uncomfortable if I want to be productive. I refuse (laughs) to be uncomfortable, but sometimes I have to look like I belong in a respectable place lifestyle, which is like Viore is perfect for it because they, the clothes look fantastic. They fit great. They are so comfortable. I lie down in mine all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Especially, Erin, the women's performance joggers. They have a slim but relaxed fit and are designed with dream knit stretch fabric. I love my joggers. I've slept in mine. I've slept in them. Really? You don't get hot? No. They're very, like, on like a couch nap. You know, you have like a, oh yeah. you've got like maybe a half an hour in the afternoon. You're like, ooh, I've got a like small break. I'm very tired. I'm going to just like lay down for 20 minutes. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect for couch napping. Joggers. I love the leggings. I can work out in them. I can do my errands in them. I can wear them with a proper top to a business meeting. It is not a problem. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you probably could. Just put a a blazer and like— Denim shirt. Denim Denim shirt, blazer, leggings. So easy. 100%. And, of course, the men's core shorts. They have a classic athletic fit falling just above the knee while the Sunday performance joggers are made from recycled performance stretch fabric. I got my dad some men's core shorts. He wears them to mow the lawn. It's perfect. He is like I think my my dad is one of those people that just like beats the crap out of his clothes. He'll wear them until they're they look like a security blanket that a 30-year-old yep. still has where it's just like a ball of string and you're like, um, our dads are the same. Yeah, yeah, but um my dad has had his for like a couple years now, and I think I, I saw him wearing them the other week when I met up with um, family on a, on a short weekend trip, and they still looked great. It was like, Dad, your clothes still look new. <laughs> so fancy. Viore is offering Hysteria listeners 20% off your first purchase. Get some of the most comfy and versatile clothing on the planet at viore.com slash hysteria. That's V-U-O-R-I dot com slash hysteria. You'll also enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75 and free returns. Go to viore.com slash hysteria and discover the versatility of Viore clothing. And welcome back. It's it's a special day every day, I think, on Hysteria. But today is an extra special day. It is the actual birthday of our third member of the discussion, Megan Gailey. Happy birthday. Hi. Thank you. This is the first birthday in my life where I will get to celebrate Michael Jordan's birthday as well. Because I'm not mad at him anymore. I'd let it go. <laughs> so my Wait. birthday twin is in my heart now. That's first of all, that's a great birthday twin. Mm-hmm. Um, second of all, what caused you to no longer be mad at him? The last dance. I mean, I everyone was always like, he's mean, he's mean. And you know, he would always beat the pacers. So it was like, he beats the pacers, he's mean. And then when I watched the last dance, I was like, he's mean, like I'm mean. You know, like it's like fun <laughs> mean. It's not, you know, I wouldn't throw a basketball at someone's head or punch my teammate, but I troll people in my life. <laughs> so I, I feel a kindred spirit with him. 
No, MG and MJ sharing <laughs> a birthday. Um, Alyssa, your birthday is coming up on Monday, too. This is a birthday-tacular week for the Hysteria family. It is. It's a big week. It's me, George Washington on the 22nd, Drew Barrymore. Wow. It's a big day. It's a big day. February is a beautiful month to be born in. (laughs) (laughs) But Megan, both of us probably growing up never had a birthday in school. Um, I growing up thought I would like tell people President's Day was like off actually for my birthday. <laughs> so like if we didn't have it, I was like, you're welcome. Um, but it's it, now that there's so much snow, I'm like, this is what always happened on my birthday. There would always, Same. I would have something scheduled and then there would be 12 inches of snow that fell and then it would not be scheduled anymore. So and you wouldn't be able to go to the roller rink and slow skate Mm-mm. to... I don't know. What what never had a dream come true? I don't know if that was like after yeah. your time or not. Or maybe next too close. Oh I loved yeah. That one. Yep. <laughs> Little kids love to roller skate to lyrics they Corny couldn't possibly song. understand. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say mine was like every rose has its thorn. Mm. Oh wow. My prom song was November Rain, and I graduated what? from high school in the early two thousands. Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> and, and not in November. <laughs> not in November. Yeah. Prom <laughs> happened in, in May. April. And uh, yeah, it had, that was a very old song at the time. Um, Let's talk more about birthdays though. Megan, have you ever gotten like a super memorable birthday gift, either good or bad? Um, My husband is so good at gifts. Like he just kills it every single time that everything he gives me, I mean, this year he got me, he commissioned an artwork of Daisy Duck painted as the Queen of England and it has <laughs> it has my dog in the background like it's his brother painted it like he just finds a way to nail what i what i want perfectly i didn't know that i wanted that and then i saw it and i was like wow that's that came from my brain that's amazing so where are you hanging it that's the really tricky part we don't know yet <laughs> i don't know i'll send you guys a picture it's so funny she's got a little joint in her hand it's the best <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I love it. And, you know, the Daisy, every time I see a Daisy Duck iconography anywhere, I'm like, Megan Gailey. I feel like you guys are like cartoon kindred spirits. Thank you. We are. I love that. (laughs) Um, Alyssa, I want to hear about a memorable birthday. Do you have a story about that? Memorable birthday. Memorable birthday. I would say that uh, when I turned... 30. I had just started working for Barack Obama. And um, it was kind of like not a great year. My boyfriend and I have many, many years had um, had broken up. And everyone felt so sad for me that this had happened, that they all got together and threw the like, shout out to Stephanie Cutter. They threw this, and Favreau was there too. Oh my God. And Tommy. Um, she threw a birthday party at her house where she cooked all the food and it was like very fancy. And of course, my ex-boyfriend who I had been with for so long had to be involved. Marvin had to be involved. And so he got pictures from my mother that they blew up of me from when I was very young. And um, it was like very cute, but mostly I had gotten very skinny for this Nanette Lepore top. And the only (laughs) pictures of me in it, it was so cute. It was like lavender, like kimono. And I got super thin for it. And the only pictures are of me with a cigarette hanging out of my mouth. So it's like kind of sad. (laughs) 
I look at those pictures. There is literally the best picture of me maybe ever taken was that night. And there's just like a waft of smoke across my face. <laughs> that sounds cool though. Yeah, it's cool. That it's not like, you know, awesome. it's just, just for me, just for me. <laughs> you should get a portrait commissioned based off that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you guys, I look like I look like I'd been taking those hair vitamins you take, Erin. My hair was so like lush and brown and I had a swoop wow. across my head. It was like I was living my sex in the city. Like, it was Carrie Bradshaw, and I was just ready to go in my little jeans and my purple kimono top. They need to, like, get that picture out to young women and be like, this is 30. It's okay. It's fun. Like, you're going to look hot at 30. It was a great— 30 was a great year. It definitely was. I feel like your 20s are mostly feeling bad about not being more on top of things. And then when you get to your 30s, you start talking to other people who are in their 30s, and you're like, wait. The 20s were kind of bullshit, weren't they? Yeah, they were bullshit yeah. for me too. And it's like nobody talks about how kind of bullshit. And that's okay. Like, mm-hmm. it's okay if your 20s weren't bullshit, but it's also super okay if they were. But see, that's the thing though. And then you get to your 40s and you're like, your 30s are bullshit. You're like, what the <laughs> fuck? I'm like free to be. I honestly can't wait for 50. I may have no fucks left. Wow. Oh, man. Fuck supply dwindling. <laughs> Some of the 20s pressure is there's so many older people being like, oh, that's the best time of your life, right? Isn't that the best time of your life? Oh, God, I wish. And so then you're like, oh, I guess this is the best time of my life, (laughs) even if you don't feel it. Yeah. And gosh, this actually segues perfectly into what we're going to get into. This is a topic um, that doesn't have anything to do with the fact that it's Megan Gailey's birthday. So just we're not calling (laughs) Megan old. (laughs) But, you know— I've known Megan for almost three years now since we started putting this show together. And one of the first things I learned about you was that you love old people. You just love them to bits. I know that independently about you, Alyssa, and I know that about me also. And, you know, I was thinking about birthday parties and getting together with people and how last night I kind of reached a point where Biden said something about things getting back to normal by Christmas. Alyssa texted me and I was like, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) I just was thinking, you know, if it's hard, it's it's hard enough living in the pandemic just as a normal, young, able-bodied person. But You know, the people that I think are really getting a a raw deal are people that are very old and in nursing Mm -hmm. homes. Um, Because I think right now we're dealing with a time where they're, they've always been isolated and there's always been, you know, it's been tough for them to, to feel like happy and appreciated, but now we're living in a time where it's worse than ever. So um, Megan, I want to talk to you about like, what are you know, what are the, some of the things that you love about old people that you've had in your life? And um, and have you had a chance during the pandemic to connect with elderly people, family members, and friends? Oh, my gosh. This is the – this is, maybe this is my favorite birthday present of all. Um, I – so I've always really connected with older people. And my grandmother was obviously someone very, very special to me. And so after I helped care for her, I went to work in a retirement community because I was like, I just want to be around them all the time. And 
I had so much fun there. I mean, there's so much joy and love and laughter. And I think sometimes, you know, nursing homes, retirement communities get such a bad rap, but there's actual life happening there. There's romance. There's people learning things, languages. We had a group of women becoming sommeliers. Like, there, you don't go there to die. You go there to continue living. And even the crotchety old people I love. Like, there's just so many different stereotypes, and you can meet a crotchety old person, and when they give you a smile, it's it warms you in a way that no one else's smile can. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was calling and checking on, like, six to ten old people above 70 that were very vulnerable in um, the East Hollywood community, and then... So I would call them, find out what kind of food they needed, talk to them. And I got so many God bless yous and I love you and thank you. They're so appreciative. Um, And then this Sunday, I'm actually going to visit a 92-year-old family friend who is staying in California. And we text and she was like one of the first female state reps in Indiana, just like a badass, cool woman that used to be a Republican and now isn't anymore. Um, And and that's, that's an evolution of an old person, you know, like she did not become um, radicalized until her late 80s. And so that really is a testament of like growth. It continues to happen. You don't want to throw people away and lock them behind a door. They're they're evolving people still. Mm -hmm. Alyssa, what are your thoughts and what are your experiences with um, the elderly? The elderly? Well, I mean, I think that for me, like, my Oma and my Opa, but especially my Oma because she was around much longer. I mean, they were just like, I feel like they're the people that teach you. They're like the leaders of the Zero Fucks Brigade. You know what I mean? <laughs> like my Oma, I have this fur coat of hers. Nobody tweeted me. Yeah. It's been her coat. It was her coat since 1960. And it's like when you hear the stories of things, it really just like, I feel like they have always made me appreciate things very much. So this fur coat, after my opa dies, she never got her driver's license. So she's going to the food town in Whiting, New Jersey, and she gets on the bus and she has her fur jacket on. And this young person assaults her. This woman fled Nazis, okay? And this young woman is like, do you know how many animals died for that? No. Was she wrong? No. However, (laughs) Omi just looked at her and she was like, Dumatsu, which means like you're stupid. Dumatsu. These animals would have been dead for 40 years now. Go sit down. And it was just like, (laughs) you know, to her back then, it was a different time. Like that was, there was no North Face jackets back then. Like that is legitimately how you stayed warm. And so I feel like that for, for her, she was always the one who, you know, even when I was little and I was like, I think they don't like me at school. Who cares? (laughs) <laughs> Who cares? Who were they? And like when we would go feed, the, we used to go feed the ducks. And there was this little girl there once. I remember this clear as day. And she and and the girl wanted to talk to me, and I was like not having it. And Oma just looked at me like the surly German that she was, and she's like, "Who do you think you are? You think you're better than her? You're not better than anybody, and don't you ever forget it." Now it's a tough lesson for a four year old, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, I just think that it's like. And, and, you know, where I live up here in Columbia County now, I mean, I'm not surrounded by super young people. And I think I just 
learn from every single one. And my older friends are the most adventurous of Mm -hmm. everybody, like Mm -hmm. hands down. Like, why don't we try it? What have you got to lose? Let's do it. So I think it's very, you know, I think there's just, they're like walking encyclopedias of -hmm. of, uh, conscience and morality too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because like if you talk to, you know, I I feel like, a lot of people, like culturally, I'm not talking about you guys. I think culturally, people love to celebrate old people like Betty White. Protect Betty White at all costs. Like every time she's trending, people are like, oh, no, Betty White. You know, people <laughs> people love a 99-year-old lady. Um, but in practice, that's not really something that people don't really – and I'm not – again, I'm not pointing fingers. But I think that people don't necessarily connect with elderly people on a day-to-day basis. I was looking up some stats about this, and there's 1.3 million people in nursing homes currently. And a lot of that seems to be because, um, like most things in America, we did not plan at all. And now this is the system that we've sort of fallen into. Um, Why do you think that there's a disparity between uh, people loving old people at a distance um, and people actually in practice trying to promote a society that uh, actually values them and incorporates them as as vital members. I think in a lot of ways, seeing old, like being with them, it really reminds us that we are going to be old someday. And so our own fear of that just makes us put up a wall of like, I don't want to go there. It smells weird. I don't want to be a part. And it's like, it, it doesn't. And like, that is going to happen. My grandma would always say like, getting old is not for the weak. Like it is tough. And if you make it there, you are a survivor, truly. But it it's our own, it's our own fear of our mortality. And I think this year has challenged that fear more than any year in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I worked at a nursing home when I was in high school, and um, there was a guy that always had really funny T-shirts. Like, he was the funny T-shirts guy, and um, he had one that said, my plan is to live forever, so far, so good. <laughs> <laughs> he was like 95, I think, the last time I um, that I worked there. So, um, But it was like, you know, I think that, Megan, you're hitting on something here that it's— we don't, we, we are like very avoidant when it comes to like aging and death and being avoidant doesn't prevent those things from happening. It just prevents us from being ready mm-hmm. when they do happen. Um, Alyssa, I was wondering what your thoughts are on, you know, one, one thing that, that I also found as I was researching for this is that um, elderly care costs $250,000 a year. And that's with people earning minimum wage. Like Mm -hmm. people who work to care for old people are not making very much money at all. Um, Alyssa, what do you think, do you think that there are policy solutions or political solutions to making elder care more affordable and and making uh, elderly people feel like more of a part of the community and less um, kind of institutionalized and kept away? You know, it's funny because in New York, uh, there's been a lot of controversy in New York about the undercounting of deaths, of COVID deaths in nursing homes during the pandemic. And as they've gone, you know, it's like the local news especially uh, has gone into some of these nursing home communities where some of this uh, was reported. 
it's like you just see these were not posh nursing homes. Mm-hmm. You know, these were not the fancy pants ones. These were this was like the one that I busted my Oma out of. You know, like the first one that she went to was like it's like, I can't even think about it. It makes me so sad. And it's like, you just can't imagine that people have contributed so much to society. And like, this is where they go. And you have to assume that if we can figure out public colleges and universities, we should be able to figure out better elder care for the, like, like we say the greatest generation. And then, you know, and it's not, it's like, because it is all basically, you know, how much Medicare do they take? You know, how much mm-hmm. do they take veterans benefits? Do they have social security? Like there are so many different ways. I remember when my Oma, she couldn't even keep up with how you fill out the paperwork. I mean, when you think about it, if you don't have someone who is taking care of the person in the nursing home, like even just legally, it's, 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 beyond complicated. And I I don't know what the policy solutions are. I feel like this is something I should actually research. I feel like Bernie Sanders may have something to say on the matter. Mm -hmm. But I do think that it is um, that the people who can save as much as they save, you know, to to think that they're going to have like a nice life and then you've saved all this money and the nursing home you can afford is like a prison. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's so depressing. So I would really, I would really hope, especially by the time we are old, that there are more uh, affordable and humane. And and like Megan was saying, it's like, there are places where you can go and learn and live your best life and thrive. And sometimes like the things I have seen, especially on TV in the last couple of weeks have been like where you go to survive, Mm -hmm. you know? They they cost so much money. The place I worked was designated a nonprofit, and it was a continuing care retirement community. So you could buy in at sixty five, yeah. well, and be locked in at that price. And then once you needed twenty four hour care, you were at that price. And this was in Illinois, and so the teachers' pension is was so strong in Illinois that we had lots of teachers that were there were wealthy people that lived here, but there were not, there were middle class people. But as I like even say that, I'm like, there's not going to be pensions for us. Like right. that's going to go away. Mm-hmm. And so then, what happens to those middle class people? They're not going to be able to be in these nicer places. So there's going to be a need for there's always going to be high-end versions of everything, but there seems to be very few. You can be here, you will have a nice life, and it's not going to feel like an institution. Those options seem to be dwindling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. It's something that I think about a lot and that I don't think a lot of people want to even consider, again, because it's sort of unpleasant. But You know, there are people now who are older Gen Xers or very young boomers who are out like starting to get elderly themselves and they're taking care of elderly parents. And they're understanding now that like the way that nursing homes, like nursing homes have look back periods. So like, let's Mm -hmm. say you have a elderly mom and she's, you know, or or elderly grandma who's 85 years old living on her own one day falls down and breaks her hip and needs to go to a nursing home to recover. And, you know, that recovery could actually happen, or it could just be that now she needs help to live. Mm -hmm. So she's living in her house 
And as, as soon as she goes to the nursing home, in order to try to avoid having the nursing home count that as part of her assets, like she transfers her house to you. No, mm-hmm. no. There's a look back period where a nursing home can be like, no, you so, you got rid of that asset within this period of time that still yeah. counts as your asset. So you don't qualify for any aid. You don't qualify for Medicare. And there's so many ways that Many, like, I think, I I feel like I'm millennial-centric because I'm a millennial, but I don't think this just just applies to millennials. Um, There are so many ways that generations that came after the boomers have gotten hosed. Mm -hmm. And I think that the expectations um, around cost of elder care is one thing. A total lack of infrastructure for um, places that you would actually want to put your your elderly relative. Like, I don't think, I, I can't, I don't think that people make the decision lightly to just like put their relative in care. Like most people try their hardest, you know, to do what they can. And it just becomes not something that they can do anymore. Um, But I think that there's no infrastructure. Like there's no, where's, where's the golden girls situations? Like where's the, right? (laughs) where's, where's like the chance for like, I mean, I think I read in, in Europe, I don't remember what country it is. I bet, Alyssa, you remember what this was. There was a story about how in Europe um, you can get an, an elderly roommate or, like, old people can move in and young people would get, like, subsidized mm-hmm. rent to, like, live in a place with, with older people. Yeah, with older people. And, like, it just feels like separating the community or the society we live in into uh, young single people socializing families totally separate and then old people totally separate robs every group of what each we could offer each other you know and and I think a lot of our I mean our generation I'm sure Bernie Sanders has thoughts about this and I bet Elizabeth Warren has a plan but our generation is really running headfirst toward just some disastrous situations mm-hmm. when it comes to elder care um Let's transition to a, a up note to end this conversation on. What's the greatest piece of advice, uh, wisdom, or knowledge that you got from an older person? I think it was when my Oma said, who do you think you are? Like that, that there is just nothing. There is no one better than you. There, there is no one worse than you. That like everybody has their, everybody has their gifts. And so, and I think that, I mean, it's like very hokey, but I just, I think that that's very true. And she also told me the only person I have to impress is myself, even though she always had running commentary. But I do think that 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 is a nice thing to think that the person you have to impress most is yourself. Hmm. That's a good lesson. Um, Megan, how about you? All of my close friends at the retirement community, they would always, and I worked there when I was like 25, so I was much younger than I am now, and they would always stress like, just have fun. Like, just have as much fun as you, don't even worry about X, don't worry about Y, just have so much fun because you're going to be in one of these places someday and you're (laughs) going to look back and you're going to want, like, they were just like, have the drink, wear this, do go there, like just do everything. And, and my nanny would always say like, show a little skin. Okay. You know, like I would have a sweater on. She'd be like, take that sweater off. Like, come on, get it, get the, get your goods out there. And I always thought that was so funny. And I think she was saying like, show it while you got it. Because she had like nice, beautiful, long legs until the day she died. And she would post up at the nurse's station showing them off. Like she, she truly would. And, and so, yeah, just 
have have fun in the moment. And this year's been hard to do that, but I do think about them and and feel true freedom that I am able to at least go about the world with a mask on and with fear, but I'm able to do that. And there's a lot of people that are not. Mm -hmm. Um, And Megan, you know, you mentioned that you reach out to like old people and connect with the elderly or what is there, are there like resources that other people who want to connect with old people in their communities can turn to? Yeah, so there's this amazing organization called Glamour Gals, and it used to be um, young women that would go visit in actual retirement communities and do hair and nails. And because of the pandemic, they've had to pivot, but they're doing Zooms with them, making artwork. So that is what, they're, they're in all 50 states. And so that's an organization that I've done some work with. And then the one in East Hollywood was just sort of through one of the food banks. And they set up an incredible database to find out who needed food in the community that was not able to go out and get it themselves. So I, I, your, your local Y is great. A lot of times we would have people call the retirement community and they'd be like, we want to volunteer. And it's like, it is difficult. You do need to like go through a training and there's a lot of paperwork. It's, it's not so easy as to just show up. So um, I was a hospice volunteer. You can reach out to them directly, any hospice in your community and they will train you and they always need people that can just go and, and sit with people mm-hmm. in a in a in a time for their families to be able to go out and do things. Mm-hmm. Well, that is awesome advice. And mm-hmm. we'll put uh, links to some of this stuff in show notes. Megan, I'll get that info from you so that we can let our listeners know if they want to connect like that. I want to say real quick, the best lesson I think I learned from um, elderly people was uh, along the lines of what you said, Megan. I had a a great grandpa who I never got to meet, but he used to say, you can't beat fun. Like Hmm. that was his sort of catchphrase and it sort of doesn't make sense, but it's also kind of true. You can't fun, you can't beat fun. Um, So uh, that's that's the note we'll end our conversation on the elderly on. I'm sure this is a topic that'll come up again. And Megan, I would love to have you back when we talk about it again. Happy birthday, Megan. Happy birthday, Alyssa. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I feel petty. With chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Okay, we're back. We are about to get to the part of the show where we take really strong stances on things that don't matter. But before we get there, a little bit of housekeeping. Ooh, Alyssa. It's Alyssa-related housekeeping. Who, me? Yeah, you. Yeah, you. Over on the Crooked YouTube channel, you can see Alyssa Mastermonico and John Favreau. And uh, you two are talking uh, on your series, Let's Break It Down. Can you tell us a little bit about this episode? Well, Aaron, John and I break down State of the Union addresses. What goes into writing one? Why do we sometimes call it a joint, an address to the joint session? Why is it a State of the Union? And Fabs has some pretty, uh, some pretty hilarious tales of Sotu's past. 
Nice. That sounds awesome. Um, I love that series, by the way. It's just like getting to hang out with you even longer every week. Oh, thank you. It's very fun. Um, You can check it out at youtube.com slash crooked media. We also have a really, a show we're really excited about next week. Like we're really excited about every show. But next but week, this we're, one, this we've been talking about doing this for a long time. We've been talking about doing this for a long time, um, and this I think this particular iteration came when we were off mic one time on an episode, and we started t- talking about having a bad experience at the OBGYN. Yep. And we, that was not part of the show. We ended up going on for like fifteen minutes, and I think our sound engineer was like, "Can you guys please we're stop good. talking? <laughs> stop talking about vaginas." For a second. Um, so we're going to do a show um, about women's experiences uh, interacting with the medical community and the, some of the frustrations that can arise from that. And we would love to hear from you if you're a, a listener who has experienced, um, if you've had a bad experience with the medical community, basically. If you're comfortable sharing, um, you can share with us what happened. Uh, we will check with you before we mention it on the show. We'll make sure that everything, you know, everything you're, you share with us, you're comfortable having us talk about. But, you know, women's pain is not taken seriously. Um, I've heard a lot of stories about women at the OBGYN who've gotten, had, had a bad experience. Um, and I just think it's something that we should talk about more because we're not going to fix it if we don't talk about it. So if you have a story that you're comfortable sharing with us, you can email us at hysteria at crooked.com. Just so you know, the only people that check that are me, Alyssa, and Caroline. So and we won't share anything that you shared with us outside of that circle. So hysteria at crooked.com, if you have something that you think could be uh, could be germane to the show's topic next week. Okay, the house has been kept. Now let us get on to uh, what we feel petty about this week. I'll start. Uh, I will wonder woman through this uh, landmine field with my <laughs> wrists up. Look, I'm not going to name names because I'm classy. Uh, Not that classy, though, as you'll see from what I'm about to say. I think that if a person made the world worse, if they spent their life spreading hate and uh, racism and uh, just ugliness, I don't think that it is bad to be happy when they die. I don't think it is bad to, you know, think to yourself, you know what? Good. I'm glad they're not alive anymore. Um, I think it wouldn't be great to tell that to a member of that person's family, maybe somebody who cared about that person. But I think, you know, among your groups of friends, have you guys ever seen the Muppet Christmas Carol? Yes, okay. of course. You know the Beautiful. part? Yeah, the part where, you know, I mean, it's also in the book, A Christmas Carol, but I like to reference specifically the Muppets one. But there's a scene in that where um, Scrooge is seeing a future where he is dead. And there are people gossiping about what a jerk he was. Um, Fine. Scrooge was a jerk. Those people that are gossiping about Scrooge being a jerk are not themselves jerks. They're just telling Mm -hmm. the truth. Um, So, yeah, I I don't think that if a person lived a life of uh, ugliness and pain and uh, made the world shitty, then, you know— if they're dead, I'm not. I'm not really sad about that. I, I'm actually. I'm actually kind of happy. So that's I mean, what I feel petty about today. <laughs> I was going to say, if you're not going to heed the ghost of Christmas future, then what is the ghost of Christmas future even for? Exactly. 
Exactly. You can, if you ignore the ghosts of Christmas future, look, you know, if you're going to, if you live your life as a total fucking asshole, when you Mm -hmm. die, people are going to be like, good. You know? (laughs) What an asshole. Yeah, that guy was an, if your brand as you're alive is like, I'm an asshole. I'm an asshole. People don't like me. I'm an asshole. Then when you die, people are going to continue to talk about you as an asshole. Like, I don't think it's that, look, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> All right. Um, Alyssa, do you want to go next? Yeah. I don't know if mine is petty or if I'm just mad. Um, but the other night, Joe Biden did a town hall live on television. And he very expressly and pointedly made a point about vaccinations where he said – that they had gotten hundreds of millions of vaccination vaccine doses, and by the end of July, they would be, we would have the doses, right? And so what was being extrapolated from that was like, we'll all be vaccinated by the end of July. And he was very clear to say, we would have the doses, people would still have to get the vaccinations, and then said, as you mentioned earlier, Aaron, that the uh, that hopefully by Christmas we'll be back to normal. And God as my witness, every single fucking clip on Twitter, on the morning news, on so many different broadcasts, only said Joe Biden says we will be vaccinated by July. And it's so unfair because he was very clear that that's not what he was saying. And it's just setting people up for false hope. We are so tired of our masks and of mm-hmm. being separated. And it's like the one thing that Biden and the whole administration is doing now is just telling the truth, even if it hurts. And so I was just really dismayed. I DM'd a lot of people this morning when I woke up about their broadcasts and just being like, that's so disingenuous. Like, you know, that's not what he said. And in some cases it was like a teaser, but you Mm -hmm. know that people just listen to the teaser and move on. It's like reading a headline. It's why you can't have clickbait headlines. But anyway, that was it. I was just really mad about it because I really felt like he made the point of saying it. He knew he was going to take heat, right? Like, mm-hmm. no, we'll have the vaccines by then, but you're going to have to wait to get, you know, you're going to, then we'll, people will be getting vaccinated. But I just thought it was really fucked up and unfair. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, I got to say, I, I wanted to throw my phone across the room when you told me that about Christmas. I was like, oh, <sighs> And what did we say? We were like, God, the truth, like we want the truth. You know, it's like we can be disappointed, but we want the truth. And so I felt like you and I really took a moment to process the information last night. And then people this morning were like, everyone will be fine by July. And it's like, no, we won't. Stop the false hope. The people, the thing that's going to happen is the people who have been living their lives as though everything has been fine this whole time are just going to continue to live their lives as though everything is fine. Meanwhile, we are going to be fucked through Christmas, making a sacrifice in in order to enable these pieces of shit to just exactly. continue to live however they want to live. And it's just, I'm tired of it. I think I have earned the right to push at least one person into a dunk tank after this. <laughs> like, I'm so, like, ugh. I, I'm, look, I'm, I'm sick of it, but you're right, Alyssa. It's good to have the truth, and misleading headlines are bad. Ugh. All right. Megan, you want to bring us home? Yeah, okay. Oh boy. So a few years ago, my husband and I got very into American Idol. It's um, When it made the switch from Fox to ABC, it felt very, like, they just produce it and there's t- I cry every single episode. Like, they just know how to tug on 
on my heartstrings. And so this Sunday was the premiere on, Val on Valentine's Day. We were like so excited. And then the very last competitor that they showed was Claudia Conway. And her mother, Kellyanne, was not there, but they showed her a, a lot of different times. And like, and, and that's sort of what the backlash has been is like, why is this bitch getting to like celebrate her daughter when we know that's not the truth? And she's separated children from their parents and, you know, all the things that we don't like this woman for. Um, but I would like to say Claudia got a ticket to Hollywood and she is not a good singer. Um, I think they just passed her on for the show of it because there were girls that were her same age that were better singers that did not go on. One of them had a Vietnam vet dad who stormed out. So Claudia's not a good singer and I don't think we should continue to tell her that she is. I know she really likes it and that is good. And I, I if people are like, she's 16, why are you making fun of her? Everyone on the show is 16 and they are telling them they're bad. So like I'm allowed to, I have ears too. And <laughs> she sang an Adele song and it's like, bitch, okay, <laughs> you are lost. You are <laughs> lost in your mind if you think <laughs> sing Jessica Simpson you know like sing well no Jessica Simpson's too good for her like it just everything about it I was like oh no and I don't know if I can watch the show anymore <sighs> I feel it they it's like you were duped they invaded your your place yeah. of entertainment mm -hmm. with this person who also it's like I got real caught up in this because they pre they premiered it during the they did the trailer during Bachelor like two weeks ago and I was like what the fuck is this yeah and even though it was all taped in November before the revelatory TikToks <laughs> that she posted right. it's still like take your family out of my space I just yes. it's too much we all have our own problems I don't want yours. No, right. when they did like a package of like Kellyanne hugging Trump, it's like that. This is not what I came to American Idol for. I want dads that seem like they want to fuck their daughters. You know, <laughs> like that is what I'm here for: is family relationships that are too close, not friends with Trump. <laughs> I mean, didn't we learn our lesson from uh, Sean Spicer? Trump? Spicer, like every like Donald Trump, the original reality star turned yeah. politician, like he would not be the the you know, I don't know, pain in our ass, like historic pain in our ass, if he hadn't been on The Apprentice. And like, yeah. you know, uh, Bristol Palin on Dancing with the Stars. Yeah, yeah. I had to stop it's following her on Instagram because it was too sad. Like we have, we take these like B-level celebrity, like B-level political figures mm -hmm. who are like tangentially related to somebody who is tangentially related to power. And- yeah elevate them through this like meat grinder of like virality, reality mm -hmm. TV where they don't really have, ugh. And then we spit them out on the other side and they look like, they look like, uh, they, they look like a Mar-a-Lago ghouls. Like with these yeah. too much, too much stuff in their face and their lip, they look like Lara Trump by the time they're done with it, you know? Yeah. And it's like, Oh, I, I just and I, and I worry for Claudia in a way that any adult would seeing the situation she's in. And I don't think her being on TV is going to make her life better. I think it's going to make it worse. No. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And like, I, I feel like I don't think you were being too mean or anything like that. Being a bad singer is just you telling the truth about your opinion about her. But like. I don't think that giving Kellyanne Conway any more access to fame is good for America. No. 
Mm-mm. at all. Like get like this. She needs to go to Shame Island, the Shame yeah. Island where Shame like Shame Island for her. She cannot hang out anymore. She doesn't get no. to come back and be decent. Like she doesn't get to eat food anymore without you know worrying somebody did something to it in the kitchen. Like she's no, and, and this felt like the first of what's going to be many redemption tours for a lot of people that do not deserve redemption tours. No, absolutely not. I do not. I, no, I, I reject that. And also I do, like you said, I feel bad for Claudia Conway and it's like such a complicated situation that I almost like didn't want to say anything about it just because it's like I don't you don't ultimately know what's going on in yeah, a family. Yeah, it's not our business, you know. It, but it's like it's not our business, but is it our business because we're witnessing mm-hmm. something that looks like it's bad and like you know, and I, it's I just, on social media. Yeah, and it's by the family members. I and, mean, it's exactly, and it's like it, it, either this is really happening and it's horrible and it's just as bad as it looks, and that's fucking awful. Or something is being manipulated so it's not as bad as it looks. And that's also fucking awful. And there's yeah. no way, there's no way that this ends well. In yeah, it's a lose-lose. Yeah, it's a lose-lose. So at a minimum, keep it off American Idol. Exactly. Right. At a, Let me enjoy my singing. <laughs> like, dateline at most. Agreed. You know? yes. And that's only after line. we've kind of worked out whatever problems are going on in that family. Um, okay, Megan, that was a good petty. Melissa, great. I feel petty. Uh, Thanks to both of you for coming by today. Thanks to Representative Gwen Moore for answering some of our questions. And thanks to you, the listeners. There will be more hysteria for you next week. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastermonico is our co-producer and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Our digital team is Narmelconian and Magic Root. Thank you to Juliet Beckstrand for production support every week. If you like Hysteria, I want to tell you about a new show called Chicano Squad, which is hosted by comedian and activist Cristela Alonso. Forty years ago, Houston's Latino community was plagued by discrimination, police violence, and a growing number of unsolved murders. With tension between police and the community at their peak, five young officers with little training and few resources were assigned to the first all-Latino homicide squad to solve the city's most vicious crimes. Chicano Squad tells the story of these men, their divided loyalties, and a city on the brink. Subscribe to Chicano Squad today to catch up on the season before the next episode drops. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first... Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.